Hello there, and welcome to episode 43 of The Game Pit. This is another one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes, and I'm Sean. Hey, it's Ronan here. Apologies for the long break. We've been tied up away from the games table for a while, but we're back now with four new reviews for you this week. I am going to be discussing XCOM and Legendary Encounters and Alien Deck Building Game. I almost forgot the name of it correctly in that order of many words. Sean! Well done, Ronan. And I am going to be talking about Machikoro and El Gaucho. You will also be hearing the delayed results of our Hoyuk competition. We'll be announcing the winner and we'll be asking them to get in touch with us and we'll be sending out a copy of Hoyuk with our friends from Mage Games Company. And as always, you can find us on the Dice Tower Network. We're along with the very best in gaming podcasts. We're also proud members of 2d6.org, along with a whole host of gaming goodness. We also have had some chat over on our Board Game Geek Guild this week. Some people discussing overrated games and a few other subjects. Feel free to find us on Board Game Geek and join in with the chat. Sean and myself do our best to keep an eye on things and weigh in if we have anything vaguely interesting to say. Right, we are going to start off the episode with a 2013 release that is Machi Coral, published by Pandasaurus Games and lots of others, including IDW. It's designed by Masao Tsuganuma, and Masao did a game called Diamondsters and Sukimono. It plays two to four players in a playtime of about 30 minutes. And what is it? It's a city-building card game with dice rolling and card drafting. So starting with three money, you have four landmark cards turned face down and two cards in play forming the first part of your city. Those cards are a wheat field, which has the number one at the top, and a bakery, which depicts two and three. These numbers are very important, as during each player's turn, they'll roll a die, and if they, or possibly their opponents, have the card number matching the dice roll, it activates and delivers whatever the text says. Also, during a turn, players will have the opportunity to buy another building from the market, which comprises of buildings ranging from numbers 1 to 12, as you will have the opportunity to roll two dice once the relevant power is achieved. More on that later. So there are four types of building in the market, and they are represented by colours. The blue ones are the primary industries. These allow you to gain money from the bank on anybody's turn. There are green cards, and they are the shops, factories, and markets, and these allow you to gain income from the bank on your turn only. Thirdly are the restaurants, and these take money off the person rolling the dice. And lastly are the purple cards. These are major establishments, and they gain money from all opponents during your turn only. So the aim of the game is to build up your city and gather enough income to turn over your four landmark cards, with the first to do so being declared the winner. The landmark cards are going to also offer an ongoing bonus with the cheapest of them, the train station, as I mentioned earlier, allowing you to use two dice. Now, there's not a lot more to say about this game. It's a very simple game, very simple setup. Ronan, hit us. So, I had my own Machikoro from when it was first announced it was going to be out at Essen. 
and the first thing that strikes you about the game and the first thing that struck me in the previews is visually it's really appealing it's got a cuteness to it that doesn't get in the way of the gameplay it's functional it's striking and from just photos and seeing it out on the game table i can see why this has had a wide appeal and it's been a commercial succession yeah, Ronan, I remember going to SM2013 with you and it was high, high on your list and it sold out, I believe, before we even got a chance to get in the halls. I think the people in the halls, the traders and the press and whoever got in there first, actually bought it up. So it was really popular at that SM. Yeah. <laughs> so the shame is that it's pretty much mechanically redundant. Explain yourself, Ronan. <laughs> Do I have to? Is there any more I need to go into? It's... Oh, no, it's, it's fine, it's hard to even put it to words, which I wonder why I'm on the podcast. Right. The choices I make are almost meaningless. It's almost at snakes and ladders level of choice, in that I am going to choose a certain card with my money, and if that dice comes in, I'm going to get money, which allows me to have more choices. And if it doesn't come in, I'm not going to get money. And I have no control over how that dice is going to be rolled. Now, there is slightly more to that than it. And I literally mean slightly. And we might go into how you can do sort of a denial strategy and how it plays two players, more players. But in terms of the actual gameplay, I'm pretty much gambling what numbers can be rolled on a dice. And, and that's it. I'm just hating and hoping on buying cards. So, Ronan, you played this before me and you had some problems with it and you were quite disparaging about it. So I set out, when we decided to do this for one of our episodes, i.e. now, I set out thinking, what well, he's wrong about that. It looks really good. All the press about it is fairly positive. Everything I can see about it, reading the rule book, etc. Really, it looks like a game that I would enjoy. A light, very light city building game. I love city building games. So I just thought you were talking a load of nonsense. And I set out, probably in my mind, to, to kind of prove you wrong to myself. Because I really hate you when you're all right, Ronan. And I've got to say, Ronan, you're right. <laughs> oh, I hate it. It feels dirty. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason we set out to review this. I had played it a while ago. And it has been a big success. And it has sold lots of copies. And people are saying they're having lots of fun with it. Okay, so you got it and you were willing to like it. And now I was willing to like it. I was, okay, let's give this another go. Let's try it because there is must be an appeal to a certain section of gamers with regards to it. But it's just such an obvious design. It feels like, is it different to any other one of these games and there's a little anecdote for you in that do you remember that little card game I designed Sean which I called, I called Fortress which I designed in 15 minutes sort of as a bit of fun it had a few cards in it and you drafted them and you could score some points at the end shameless right. plug but yes I do <laughs> shameless plug for a game that doesn't exist anymore but you lost out, but anyway, <laughs> I lost it somewhere anyway so it was a card drafting game where you drafted four cards and you put them down and you scored some points when I was chatting to people who played it we started just having a bit of banter backwards and forwards. And people were on the spot creating cards which would fit into the system of Fortress. Because they were obvious. It was based on sort of building a medieval castle. And they were like, oh, you could build a catapult. You could build bandits. You could build this and that. And they all fit within the system. And you all went, yeah, that would work, that would work, that would work, that would work. That's what I feel about Machi Koro. 
I could make 50 cards at the top of my head which would all fit into the Machikara system and, and all work and all be absolutely obvious. There are cards that give you money when you roll the dice. There are cards that give you money when someone else rolls a certain number of dice and there are cards that take money away from people when a number rolls on the dice. Yeah. That's it. There's nothing. It it's, it's just anyone could have designed this game. It is, I mean, it's a dice game, so of course there's going to be random in there, but as you said, Ron, this one is just completely random, and it really doesn't matter how well you strategize or plan your move, thinks things through, if your dice numbers don't come up and your opponents do, then you're going to lose the game. And there seems to me, Ron, to be a definite turning point when one player hits a few important rolls and the other doesn't, and then that's kind of leads to a victory procession, especially in the two-player game. Yeah, we have problems with the two-player game. And you're right. Once you start getting rich, you're going to get richer because that allows you to buy more buildings, which means you're likely to have the numbers roll up for you again, which means you're going to get more money, buy more buildings, you end up having more buildings than other players and therefore score more money and you're going to win. There's nothing subtle about that. With the two-player game, there is that slight strategic choice which we went through and we discussed is that Sean started trying to create a synergy between different buildings. So if you have a bakery, there's then a card which if you roll between 7 and 12 on the two dice, if you make that move with your train station, that scores points for having bakeries and what have you. You can try and somehow do that. But whether you roll that number you need or not, who knows. But you can try and do that. So then I took the only really option open to me because Sean had made a stronger start than I had and I never took a building above 6. And I only rolled one dice, which means Sean couldn't get anything on my turn most of the time because I was just rolling one to six. And that was the only strategic decision I've ever made in several games of Machikoro. And all it did was annoy Sean. Yeah. <laughs> and that and that one strategic decision is not even possible, really, in more than two players because other people will just react to what you've done. And we played a game straight after that game, another two-player game, because I thought that actually that, that proved that there was actually some strategy in there. And we played with the variant Ronan, because a lot of people said, don't play the base game, that's pretty much broken. It's not really near as good as with the variant. And I think I probably had about 50% less fun with the variant. So do you want to explain the variant, Sean, and then we'll continue? Instead of dishing out all the buildings, you pull out buildings at random so that not all the buildings are available to you until they, until they come out, basically. If you pull out the same building, you keep going until a different building and it's a certain number that you stop at. For a game with no choice, really, you you get the dice roll you get and you get the money that you get, it just limited your choice even further. So the person who does get that really good building, one of the purples, for instance, off they pop if they get the the dice rolls that, that matter for them. Off they pop and the other person's just left completely behind with possibly not the choice of the other person so at least with the main game you've got all the buildings to choose for and you can decide to as Ronan did to stick under six you might not get that choice with this Ronan it took a game of few choices and made it a game of fewer choices because especially at the beginning there's only a certain number of cards that are available between one and six and then the way it works is if a pile depletes you then start drawing more cards so if you fill up your row of it was ten for two player I believe if you fill up your row of 10 cards and most of them are high end and you're just getting out, you know, there's A2 available to buy. Or well, I'll buy that then. And then A4 becomes available to buy. Well, then I'll buy that. And then on my turn, well, the number three card, there's one of them available to buy. Well, then I'll buy that. Huh? This was making it more strategic? Yeah. 
this. <laughs> Before we uh, tee off again on, the, on this poor little game, I want to just say a couple of the good things I thought about the game. And they're not much, so it won't take too long. I like the artwork, Ronan. I like, I did like, yes. it was nice, it was colourful. Initially, it was the artwork to put me off the game, but I, I've actually grown to like it. It's a very nice game to look at. Plus, there's no downtime, because you're always involved. No matter what, the dice rolls affect everybody. Well, actually, oh, 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 I, will, I will challenge you on, on that, that there's, like, there's the worst sort of downtime. At least in games like Zombie Dice or Quicks or even Dungeon Roll, when I roll the dice, it does something. In this game, we would could just bounce backwards and forwards on turns rolling dice, and they don't do anything for me. So my turn is literally roll the dice and nothing happens. You'll go. Yeah, but you had that theatre of something might happen. <laughs> the theatre of rolling a dice. Or two. or two. Or two. Let's come on now. And they're both different colours. Exciting. <laughs> I, I had the theatre of choosing to roll the black or the white. Oh, color. come on, it's the green or the blue? Blue or the green. Oh. Look, I'm just going to sum up, because I, I, you've wasted more of my time talking about this game than I've ever had fun. Go on. It's not offensive. And I know I've been whinging about it. It's, there's nothing offensive about it. It's not broken. It's not poorly made. It's just nothing. It's just... And here's my second and last analogy of the day on Magic Coro. When you were a kid, if you had to wait 20 minutes at a bus stop, it didn't really bother you. Because what else are you going to be doing? You're a kid. You just do what you're told and you go along with it. You go, okay, this is happening. You might have some fun. You might not. You might get bored. Who knows? Magic Coro is 20 minutes standing at a bus stop. You might be in good company. You might have a chat and have a laugh and go, oh, that, that 20 minutes flew by. Or you might be sitting there going, oh, when's this going to end? And when I'm doing it at a games night, when I can see other people playing actual games and having fun, and I'm sitting there going, oh, when's this 20 minutes going to end? That's not good. That's not a good choice. I don't understand. It's another one of these thrillers that's got popularity out of, I don't know, magic or drugs in the water or bribery. I don't know why this is popular. It's just a nothing experience. Well, uh, for myself, I'm just going to probably just retread ground we've, we've talked about, is that playing that game and just... The frustration of like having roll after roll where nothing happened, like as Ronan just talked about, it's just frustrating. It's probably the best it is. Then it becomes boring and just mind-numbingly so. This game does get a lot of hype, as Ronan again mentioned, and I just I can't see why. I don't hate this game. I don't. It's not the worst game I've ever played. It's mercifully short. It doesn't take up too much of your time, especially the two-player game. The reviews in in magazines and online and on YouTube, this game gets. I just don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, as I said, it looks good. I don't think there's much downtime. I don't hate it, but God, I can't wait to get it out of my collection because it just does nothing for me. And that is Machikoro. So, moving on from Machikoro to another well-hyped and successful game, it is XCOM. 
2015 release for one to four players with an advertised playing time of around 90 minutes. This one is designed by Eric M. Lang, who is big name designer nowadays. Chaos in the Old World, the Dice Master System, lots of the living card games and fancy flight games, Arcadia Quest, Blood Rage, which has just come from a successful Kickstarter, Chaos Ball, many, many designs from Eric. And Fantasy Flight Games were well, one of the biggest publishers around. Netrunner, X-Wing, Eldritch Horror, Battlestar Galactica, Twilight Imperium, Descent, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, XCOM, the board game, is a cooperative game in which the players are playing together to save the Earth from an alien invasion, and each of the players, depending on player count, are going to take well, either one or more rolls each from a set of four rolls in order to... What you're really doing is coordinating the human response to this alien invasion. Going back to the actual intellectual property of XCOM, this is based on a set of computer games which initially came out between 1994 and 2001 and were a real big deal at the time, although I don't think I ever played it. XCOM game back then, Sean will tell us later if he did, and they came back in 2012 with a return, a big splash in the video gaming world. The aliens within the game are going to attack the world as represented by the continents on the board and what they're trying to do is, is spread panic. So by being on the board and their presence there, they will move panic levels up on all the different continents on the Earth and if a certain number of continents reach a certain panic level, then the team have lost. Also, aliens will be attacking the XCOM base itself, and those are shown by units, and there are different units in the game, depending upon the difficulty, and again, we'll discuss how that works, but there are different units which will be attacking the XCOM base, which you're going to have to defend, and you're also going to have missions you're going to go out on when attacking against these units, trying to fulfill objectives, stave off the panic, and work your way through to a final mission, which if you complete that before the pack levels get too high or your base gets destroyed, you are successful against the game. Now, the aliens within this are run by an app. That app is either going to be on a desktop, it's run browser-based, or on an iDevice, or there's many different ways it's available, but you must have the app to play the game. And in fact, originally, the game came with just one double-sided A4 sheet of summary, no rule book, no reference book, although they are available now to print out, and just you had to learn and play it via this app, which does all of the AI part, of what would normally just be program movements within a normal cooperative game. With the app, that times your actions during the game, because the game is split into timed and resolution phase for each of the turns of it. It also sets the scenario, it guides you in what to do, it adjusts the difficulty, you can play it on four different settings, and it will tell you which units are available during the game, and when to put them into play, and what's happening, and what you then have to respond to. Now, I talked about the four different roles which the players play. And if I explain those quickly, I hope it will give you an idea of what the aliens are trying to do and what you're doing and how you're responding. And again, the game is split into two phases. So initially, these four roles will be responding to what the app tells you is happening and you're going to be taking actions. And then the second half of the turn, you resolve the actions which you have taken and the way that you've decided to use what you have available to you and now mostly that comes in terms of money there's a budget now the first role is a commander role and they decide how you spend the budget and it's very important that they're on top of that because the budget controls pretty much everything you do it controls 
whether you can deploy satellites. It, de- it controls what scientists you can use to research. It controls how many interceptors you can deploy to fight against the alien UFOs over the continent. It controls what soldiers you've got available to go on the mission or defend the base. Everything comes from that budget. Harsh penalties if you go over it. So that's the main role of the commander is to make sure that money's getting spent wisely. They also deal with crises that come up. There's a crisis deck of cards. The app will tell you crisis has come up. Commander draws two cards, looks at one and puts that into play. Again, to be resolved in the resolution phase. And they decide which interceptors go out to the continents on the board to fight the UFOs which are attempting to invade each of those continents. Second role is the central officer. Now, the central officer is going to be running the app. So, in the tutorial and the easy game, you have got plenty of time. When something comes up during the time phase, you can actually pause it, wait, see what's going on. It's the central officer's role to take that information from the app and tell everyone what's going on, explain to them, all right, now it's time to do this, now it's time to do that, this has just happened, that's just happened, and generally keep the game flowing along. Once you get above easy level, the time crisis is exactly that. You do have a certain amount of pause time, but it's limited, and then the central officer really has to kick in and make sure that they're communicating very clearly to each of the other three players what they need to do at the time. The other thing that the central officer can do is they deploy the UFOs to the board as instructed by the app, and they put satellites into play as allowed by the commander in his budget in order to fight UFOs which are in orbit around the planet, which will cause you problems if you don't deal with them. The third role is the chief scientist. Now, the chief scientist actually possibly has the least to do, but is one of the most important roles. The game gives you a deck of research cards which will allow you to have extra powers and make your whole team work more efficiently. And there are powers for each of the four different roles. Now, the scientist is the person who gets to draw a hand of those research cards and choose which ones are going up for research and then gets to deploy scientists to the research cards again as per the budget and to give you a chance of being able to research them, hand them out and make life a bit easier for the team. And the last role, the fourth role, is the squad leader. The squad leader is in charge of four different types of soldiers and they're going to be using those different types of soldiers to defend the base against their units, to go on the mission, to choose the mission, they choose which one they're going to go on. And the different soldiers have got different levels of capability according to different challenges and they'll be deciding how to utilise them which ones to send for training makes them elite makes them a bit better and generally running that side of things again in conjunction with the commander and the budget so like I said the team wins by defeating a final mission the app will tell you when the final mission comes into play and it will be down to squad leaders to deploy the correct soldiers to be able to defeat that mission where I've gone time phase resolution phase all those things and actions I've just told you about happen in the time phase. When we get to the resolution phase, there's then a set order where you're going to go through and you're going to resolve all the different actions you've taken. So the commander's going to check that they've done the budget correctly. The scientist, for example, then, is going to look at any research cards they've decided to put into play, any scientists have been able to deploy two of those research cards, and then they're going to roll dice. And there's two different dice in the game. They're the alien dice and the XCOM dice. Alien dice is a D8, and it's red, and it's the bad dice. And the XCOM dice are D6, the custom ones, and they have two success faces on them and four blank faces, which mean nothing. And for everything pretty much in the game, you're going to be rolling a certain number of the XCOM dice, depending upon what units you've deployed or what resources you've deployed to do this particular task with the alien dice. So, for example, if I want to do a research and I put two scientists there, I would have two XCOM dice, one for each scientist, and I'd have the alien dice. The alien threat level will start on one for this task. I then roll the dice. The difficulty of that research will be set by what's on the card, which lets it will be between one and three, which is the number of successes I need to successfully research that card. If I roll a success, 
that counts as a success and I mark it on the card with a token. The threat level, as I said, is a 1. As long as I roll more than a 1 on that alien dice d8, everything's okay. But I haven't completed the task. So the threat level goes up to 2. I can then decide to roll those two dice again, or fewer, with the alien dice. And I have to get the level of success according to whatever the task might be. But if ever I roll the alien die equal to or less than the current threat level, then the resources which I am using are going to be in some way affected. If they're scientists, they get flipped over and they're out of the game for a turn. If they are interceptors fighting UFOs, it works in exactly the same way. The threat level starts on one when you start fighting in each continent. You get a number of XCOM dice according to the number of interceptors you have fighting the UFOs. Each success kills one UFO. And then if the alien die, if I roll equal to or lower than the current threat level as I carry on rolling and pushing my luck. If I do that, all the interceptors in that fight are dead. In that case, UFOs which are left on the continents are going to push the pack level up on that continent. When you're doing missions, same thing. You're rolling XCOM dice and the threat dice. When you're defending the base, exactly the same thing. Satellites fighting UFOs in the orbit, guess what? Same thing. That is the key mechanism in the game, is rolling those dice, trying to manage the risk, mitigate the risk, usually through research cards, attempt to keep the team functioning and going and using their budget well and saving the Earth. Sean, that's XCOM. Right, Ronan, we're going to start, I think, a slightly different point to the one we usually do. Ooh. I ooh. Because we're not going to talk about a rule book, we're going to talk about the innovative, possibly controversial way that Fantasy Flight have decided to teach us XCOM. How did you feel it went? I hated it. <laughs> so, in order to learn the game, you must fire up the app. It tells you how to set up the board, which is kind of hard to understand because there's no context to these setup rules but it gives you a basic this is what the board should look like when you begin then you just fire up the app and the app says right here you go and it just says go commander set your budget hold on what what am i spending money on what am i set what's this money come from where is it who does what huh you must decide now how much money to take out for your emergency funding i don't know it gives you a suggested like take out half or whatever it says to do or three or four okay next person Scientists, choose your research. Um, well, I don't really know what any of these cards do. Because I've never played the game when there's no rule book. Yes, choose one. Choose one now. Time phase. Do it. It's not actually time to tutorial, but you get the idea. Okay. Let's say it says, Central Officer, deploy satellites to orbit. Um, okay. How do I know how many to put out? You don't even know at this stage that doing all these things are going to cost you money, which is why the commander had to set a budget to start with and then you don't know that the squad leader is then going to have to use soldiers and then you don't know that any money you have left over is how you get intercepts and soldiers back in the game because when they die they're gone and you you just don't know anything you don't know how any of it works and it's just going play the game you don't know any rules just play the game yeah i would say that it actually probably does the job it sets out to do eventually but the journey is incredibly uncomfortable. Because as Ronan said, you just don't know why you're doing anything. And it's it's a step into the unknown. You, you haven't read through a rule book. You don't know the gist of the game. And, what, and then you're looking at the intricacies of how it plays out and what does what and why you would do these things that you already know, like you would do with a normal game. This one, as Ronan very eloquently put, you just literally been told do this and you have no way of knowing why how it affects the game what's going to happen next you're not preparing for anything you're just responding to instructions if somebody taught you a game down at london and board or wherever you go to game in this manner 
you wouldn't be too impressed with them. You'd say that's not the best way to teach a game. You really need to explain yourself as you go along. Yeah, you've got no context for decisions. It's make decisions, and you don't know where you're coming from. And actually, what you said right at the beginning there, it's a very uncomfortable journey, is exactly how I felt. And that journey has put players off. And even though now I know the game, and then I, I will start trying to teach it, because you're straight away having to make these decisions and you haven't seen how the game goes but there's really no other way of doing it because it's the app that simulates the AI and until you kind of show look this is the app that does it and we have to follow what this says people are just bewildered and imagine starting it off you know you're the person who bought the game no one else knows how to play it naturally you know you have people who buy games for games group and you don't know how to play it and you're telling people well no one knows how to play it let's just start playing It's, it's not good now in the middle of March, they did fold and they did make a rule book available. But have they done a huge misstep here? Because people just seem to have taken against the game. For me, it seems to be divided down the middle. There are people who just don't get on with it. And quite possibly because of that learning mechanism or learning avenue that they went down. But there are people who do enjoy the game. I can't see a reason why they didn't put a rule book. When they've made one available now, so it's not, you know, and they had to have the rules to be able to play the game and make the game. Why not give a rule? Why not? I get the app. I'm not anti the app in any way. Yeah, I, I agree, Ronan. They should have given you the choice at least. They could have said, like, you will be taught the mechanisms only of the game. Uh, is probably you might want to read the rule book to get the general, as Ronan said, the general context of what you're doing. But the app will just teach you the mechanisms and only the mechanisms. So maybe that's a, a route they should have gone down. Right, Roland, I never played this game, so I don't know how the look of the game, how faithful it is to the video game, whether they had to do it in this design, but to my eyes, it's a really busy, awful-looking board. Yeah, I was going to come on to that, the look of the game. Is it visually appealing in any way? It kind of seems a bit disjointed, visually. And just going from... It, it doesn't all seem to okay. There seem to be almost different components from different games being thrown together. Yes, yes. Just doesn't fit together properly. There's so much going on. When you first look at that board, you, you have to take a step back. Whoa, there's a lot of colour. There's a lot of grey melding into grey and darker grey. And then a splash of vibrant colour. And then there's, ah, oh, yeah, there's so much going on. It doesn't look like it belongs, and it looks like almost like a patchwork of, of different game boards put together, as you quite rightly said, Roland. There's lots of quite similar symbols in quite similar colour schemes, which kind of clash to the eye, and then some quite jarring yellow and red. And I know it's kind of an aesthetic thing, but with the, I feel like you're disjointed from the experience going in, and then visually it's not all tied together, and that adds to the sense of fragmentation where you're going, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't really understand. And then into the gameplay again, and I guess we're going to get onto it, because you're basically playing four different games, that also makes it feel disjointed. And it's quite sort of a jarring experience to get into this game and kind of get the pattern of it and try and get the flow. And then actually the gameplay then throws the pattern out sometimes. If you're doing poorly and there's lots of UFOs in orbit, it will change the turn structure around. And I think that's part of why people aren't getting onto it, because they can't see a pattern. Both visually and gameplay, it's very hard to pick up. How do we follow this through? How do we follow the... Yeah, what are we going to do? What comes next? How Do I know where I am? Do I know what I'm doing? Roland, I'm going to mo- move on now. And this is one of the few games I think we've ever reviewed where I actually don't know what you're going to say. 
I think generally I have a good idea about your feelings on a game and I just don't know how you're going to go with this but for me I'm going to start with the app now we've talked about the way the app teaches the game but on a positive note I think once you have learned the game I actually really enjoy the app I think it does lend attention it lends that real-time nervousness to the game it's clear it's it's easy to decipher maybe not on an iPhone or an Android phone but I haven't played it on those. I've only played it on a pad and a laptop. I think they did a good job with the app once you understand the game. Yeah, I like, actually, I like playing with the app. And I like the idea of apps. And I especially like the idea of apps running co-op games. Although I'm going to add a little proviso at the end of, of this little chat we're having now. But I do think the app does it well. I think it adds to the tension. But, and there are, two, are lots of buts in this already, it depends what sort of a player you are. Because there are going to be lots of players who don't like real-time games, don't like the tension, don't like forced into making quick decisions, and they will react badly against the app because it is very much that. It is very much the app going, decide this now, decide this now, decide this now, right, now decide this, now decide this. Okay, you're running out of time. Now do this, now do this. Okay, now do that, now do that. And that's what it feels like as you're playing. Now, either you're engaged with that process, and I think that's just going to be a personal thing because in terms of that's what it does, it does it well. If you engage with that process and you take it on board and you go, okay, we're going to have to react to this now, we're going to have to communicate better, we're going to have to do better, great. If that is something you think, wow, a computer sitting there going, mah, 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 do this, do this, do this, do this, sounds like the most awful thing in the world, you're just not going to get on with the game. It's not to do with how well the app is implemented, it's just, it is quite a polarizing system to use. Like you say, for me, it does it well. The only slight, you know, this could be the Luddite in me coming through with the app is, is the app leading me by the nose too much? Is the app reacting to how well or poorly I'm doing and then therefore mitigating the level of challenge? So if it sees I haven't completed the mission for three turns, I'm struggling a bit, does it ease off? Or if it sees that there's none of the contents going into panic and not even getting to the next level up, towards panic after five rounds it thinks oh you're doing well i'm gonna start throwing more at you is that going on am i playing a fair game or is the app trying to balance for me what i'm doing hmm, interesting question. i often I... wear a tinfoil hat yes, to yes from reading do, my yes. Brainwaves. i don't think we've played it enough to to ever decide that i think that's one down to the programmers of the app to, to you program it to do that I think sometimes it feels like it does help you when you're doing bad, but I think sometimes it feels like it digs the knife in. So I'm going to go with it's it's random, but then again, my tinfoil hat has leaked a little bit. (laughs) Sean, I'm going to ask you a question. Go on. Is there enough for each of the stations to do during the game? Does it keep you engaged throughout the whole thing? Oh, see, now I was going to go, I was going to hit this last, Ronan. I, and I think you've mentioned this in the past, so maybe you led me by the nose a little bit to this decision. (laughs) I don't think there's enough to do for the scientist and the central officer. I think it plays best with two players when you've both got one each of those two things or two two roles to play and i think there's just enough we played a game it's the best game i've played of this so far with just the two of us i had two roles you had two roles 
and it was a proper whoop moment at the end when we just scraped through some really interesting decisions had to be made and completely on the hoof so that's where i think this game sits as a two-player game yeah actually that that's really i've got the number two written in in, in big font on my piece of paper here saying yeah as a four-player game i don't think it really works for this reason the commander is really making a lot of the big decisions they really, in the fact that they control the budget, that is massively important. They will decide at where the resource is going to go. So they might turn around to the, let's say, central officer, you get two satellites. Chief scientist, you've got four scientists. Squad leader, you've got five soldiers, use them wherever you want. That's how many you've got. And that's half the decision making done for you. And then you're just kind of teetering there and you're just kind of crimping around the edges going, alright, oh, I've got four scientists. Well, I, I will prioritise from there. And while the commander is making those big decisions which are obvious, the scientist is, I think, making the most important decisions. Because unless you get tech, and you get it into play and it's effective tech, you won't win. I think when you split those two up, that's cool. But the central officer has very little to do in terms of actually doing things, and the scientist has very little to do in terms of doing things. So you kind of have to split them up as well, because in a four-player game... Commander and Chief Scientist are making most of the decisions, but the Chief Scientist is not really doing much, and then the Central Officer is just reading from the app. They're not actually doing much, which leaves the squad leader waiting for the last couple of actions to put some soldiers out, and they don't even decide how many soldiers to use because the Commander's always already decided that. And that's how I don't think there's enough for four players. I also think, and this will lead on to another point, each of those stations, it's almost, when I'm trying to see who this is the ideal game for, they're all too simple for gamers. There's not enough decision making in a four player game for four gamers to keep everyone engaged. But, when I tried to play it with casual players, it was very hard for them to see how all the stations linked together in the intricacies of, I make this decision means you can't make that decision but this will help you do that and then you can't do that. And then they became overwhelmed by the overall gaming mechanisms that are going on, because there's lots of small things going on which chain together, which are all very simple. Split them amongst four gamers, too simple. Try and play it with casual gamers, and they're kind of overwhelmed. Yeah, and we even found that some of some seasoned gamers were quite overwhelmed, as you mentioned before, about this computer barking at them, you must play now, you must play now, or the, the central officer barking at them through the computer, and you have to play now. A lot of people like time, and that brings me on to my point, which is, this is definitely a game that you have to be right alongside with and delve into. You can't just sit there not getting into the theme of it. If you feel playing this game that the the wolf isn't at the door, the aliens aren't attacking, and you, your mission isn't that critical, or the aliens circling orbit, if we let them down onto the globe, it, that's a disaster. If you don't feel any of that, and it's just the game moving numbers and organising budgets and economising and what, else, what have you, then this isn't the game for you. You have to get into it. You have to feel like you're working together with somebody to keep the aliens at bay, keep that wolf from the door. Yeah, and I think we talked about that before in terms of you have to engage with the app, you have to accept everything that's going on, and it's definitely a game that if you step back from, and it forces people to step back from it, and don't become engaged, it can just be a whole load of moving stuff that you're not following at all. Like you said, when you get committed players in there, it works, and I think we're going to come to that in that when it works well, it really works well. 
it's how appealing it is and how often it works. Does is it easy to call it a good game overall? I guess we'll get to that in our summaries. The sort of other set of gamers, I guess, I'm going to look at coming from is that XCOM is a successful computer game franchise. So I'm guessing they're trying to engage computer gamers with this game and to get them to play, you know, tabletop games. And it's not the first computer game translation FFG have done. They've done Starcraft and they've done World of Warcraft games and they've done Gears of War, a game I really like as a co-op, actually. Was this whole presentation, was this learning the game via just playing it as a tutorial due to that computer game heritage? Because that's generally, obviously, how you play computer games. I know that back when we first started playing computer games, you used to get a big manual which would teach you everything and now you just don't get them anymore. You just start playing by the, via the tutorial. Is this a first step into something that we will see more and more where games with apps, because they are coming and they are going to be more of them, will adopt that computer game system of using tutorials to teach you how to play the game? And in terms of the game, Sean, do you think this will engage the computer gamers who will be coming across because they're XCOM fans. I don't know whether they've brought that mechanic of teaching the game over to keep the flavour of the game and because it's very much a, a computer teaching you in the game, I understand, and whether that's that's why they just wanted to keep the flavour or whether it's a genuine attempt at changing the way that we, we teach games. For, for your the second point, I don't think this game... I think there are games out there that translate well and that video gamers would understand, and that tends to be the more economic games, the city builders, the civilization style. I think they sort of carry over well into the board game world. This, as an action game where you're, where you're doing all action things and defending against these aliens and blood splattering everywhere or whatever happens, I'm not sure that gamers will, will, will get it. I think they'll get the tension of it, but I don't think the, the mechanisms will, will appeal to them. Very well. well, I think if you're trying to do that sort of thing, video gaming is so much a better medium for that. I think it's very hard to interpret certain types of computer games and a certain facility that computer games offer into tabletop gaming. I know that the newer X1 games work sort of tactical shoot 'em ups and people were looking forward to a game like that, a, a game on the board. But if you they tried to do that with Gears of War and I think they did it really, really successfully and Gears of War seems to be almost ignored. So I think they tried to learn from that and then marry that system of XCOM into a more board gamerly system, a more strategic overview, if you like, while maintaining some computer game facets. And again, I think it's been with mixed results. So I do like that they've tried to do something different. At least they're trying to, they're not just pumping out something that's a basic, it's not, I love worker placement games, but it's not just a worker placement game, or it's not just a copy of something else. At least they've tried to go out there, capture an essence of the XCOM games, and try to put them into an interesting board game format, whether that's completely successful or not. My last question to you, Sean, is we did cheer when we got some good roles right at the crux of that real great game of XCOM that we had. Other games, it hasn't been that exciting. Is there too much dice rolling in the resolution of it? We've talked about how the app works and what all the roles are doing during the app phase, but we, we haven't really, apart from Ronan's initial introduction to the game, we haven't really talked about that that secondary phase 
where you're rolling the dice and you're you're reaping the rewards or suffering the penalties of what you've chosen to do in the time phase. Is there enough decisions in the time phase? So I'm going to also put a question back to you and I'll answer it myself. And do they really affect the game or does it come down to those that good l- luck with the dice rolling when you, if you're going to win or lose? I think I'm going to answer it before I even get to you, Ron. I think that there is just about a balance where it works i think you do have to make the right decisions within within a parameter within a certain area in that time phase if you stray too wildly defending in a certain area or an area that's in jeopardy you don't defend it then you're going to lose the game the dice roll is going to be heavily against you and the chances are you're going to completely bomb and lose the game if you do get it right in that area of just doing amount enough to keep the dice rolls interesting and there's enough for you to to aim for in those dice rolls i think it is exciting seeing what you've reaped how well have you done have you put enough snipers in the base to defend against the alien attack have you sent enough warriors to the mission have you defended africa well enough is where your base is that is exciting and i think it just about works Ronan. to me actually i think the decisions you make the time phase are more important than that sean honestly especially the budgeting especially not wasting things especially not focusing in certain areas you can't defend everything at once you do have to prioritize i think the communication has to be good between the different stations the risk with a game with this many dice rolls is people do take that stance of it's so random it's so much down to good or poor dice rolling that actually it's not that important how we plan but i disagree and people were saying how difficult this game is and they've never beaten it and there's no chance of beating it and I'll tell you, I think that when a team plays well, it makes a huge difference. And the massive difference I find is that if you research well, if you get the cards out that mitigate against the dice rolls, let you re-roll an unlucky alien dice, let you add a certain extra number of dice in for certain crucial rolls, and you use your research well, it becomes much more strategic than the amount of dice rolling would suggest. Oh yeah, the scientist... uh... Although it may be one of the easier roles to play in the game in terms of you're not doing a whole heap, I think we found in a subsubsequent game where one person decided that they weren't going to fund science at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think we found that we quickly lost that game. And miserably so. So yeah, the science is very, very important. Team play is very, very important and... Even the role of the central officer, they have to be clear, they have to be almost in charge, almost like a dungeon master. You must do this at this time. Right, you go, you go, your turn, your turn. Everything has to be clear. So everybody's got a definite role to play. As we said before, I'm just not sure that all of those roles individually are are enough for a gamer, but I think definitely teamwork is of the essence in this game. We have talked at length about this, Sean. This is probably one of our longest reviews we've given in a long, long time. Because it is a game of conflicts and a game of different elements, and certain parts I think we found work well, and certain parts don't work well, and it's very particular in what sorts of gamers it works with. So, now I'm really interested to hear... What's your summary overall? Try and put all those kind of thoughts we've had bouncing around into XCOM. What do you think of it? Well, Ronan, I tried to learn it by by the app. And 
I got so far, I learnt the basic mechanisms, but then I kind of gave up, and you taught me the game in itself, and I think that made a big difference. I wasn't frightened away by the app, and you explained it to me much better than the app would have done. So, I was onto a winner already. I hadn't been frightened away by the game. I think it is a two-player game. I really don't think there's enough in some of the roles for, for four players. Having said that, I really found it a really rich, rewarding experience. It was sink or swim, and when you swim, the feeling of elation of actually achieving something, it was worth the journey. In that game that we discussed, Ronan, it was a game that we reached rock bottom, we felt we were out, we were out on our feet, we managed to just claw on, we made some good group decisions, we came back and the feeling of just achieving something was brilliant, I really enjoyed that. I like the mechanisms in the game, I love a dice roller, you know you know me, I do like my dice rolling, I like the fact that there are some genuine choices to be made, I like that, I'm saying a lot of likes here, I like that it doesn't mess around this is your role you don't have to faff around trying to discover what your role is and this is your role this is what you're going to do just be good at it i didn't like the artwork i wasn't a big fan of the app teaching it but overall i really enjoyed this game and i look forward to a good few plays of it yet so i hated the presentation both physically and in the learning the game and i really found Having to go through the app and learning the game to be able to teach it a massive pain. I found sometimes teaching has been okay with certain people, sometimes it's been an absolute grind, and I can almost tell from teaching the game whether someone's going to enjoy this or not. I'm not that fussed by the XCOM IP. I've played the newer XCOM computer game, the first one came out in 2012 a bit. Again, that wasn't part of the appeal to me. I was really interested in the app integration. I think that in terms of gameplay, they've done it well in bits. Again, flogging this very dead horse. Hated having to learn it from the app. I really like a co-op game. I really like a game that makes you play a co-op game cooperatively, not four separate games, and this very much does that. If you want to play well, you have to work as a team. It almost feels like a team-building exercise to me. Almost like something I do at work in terms of dealing with emergency situations and what have you. You each have your own role. What do you have to communicate? What is important? What are the key decisions here you have to make? And what can we leave and let go? That means that it's massively group dependent. It's how people respond to real-time gaming. It's how people respond to the challenges. Whether they engage with it. Are they willing to roll with the blows of learning the game to start with? Or do they want to know everything about the game starting off in order to forge a clear strategy going forward? If it's someone who absolutely likes to plan out the next two hours of gaming and see if they win at the end, it's not going to work. Completely not. That is the opposite of what you need here. You have to have someone who's happy to be tactical and go with it and change their mind and think on their feet. It's hard to find a balance within the group. It's very easy for the person who's most experienced to take over commander and then they're making all the decisions. They're being the alpha. They're telling everyone, you've got four, you've got three, you have to do this, you have to do that. You have to find that balance right. If it clicks, and it's clicked a couple of times, brilliant. I've had fantastic fun. But the appeal is too limited. I actually am not going to keep hold of the game. If I get a player come up to me and say, do you want to play XCOM? I really like it. I'll say yes. Two player, I really like it as well. We understand the system. Brilliant. Let's take on this challenge. We're going to have a great next couple of hours. It's such a small pool 
of players who are at that stage though that why do I need to keep the game? It's I I hate I almost fear the thought of attempting to teach this to people because I feel like I'm forcing the game on them and out of three other players I can almost guarantee at least one of them's going to hate it. So it's a brave attempt. I think a lot of stuff they've done. I think there was a couple of missteps in there. I think that they'll probably learn from those missteps because Fancy Flight Games is definitely a company that listens to their feedback, approaches things in a new way, attempts to get better, and I want to see where they go from here. I don't think this is quite the finished product in app-run co-ops, but I'm glad that we're making steps in that direction. And that's XCOM from Fancy Flight Games. So, for a few weeks back there, we were running a competition for one of our listeners to win a copy of Hoyuk. Now, Hoyuk contains catastrophes which mess with the best laid plans, and we're asking for you guys to send in your best idea for a catastrophe you would add to a civilization game. We're going to read out a few of our favourite entries now, and then we're going to tell you the winner. Now, the first entry we liked was from Thomas Preston. Thomas called his one the Judgment Pit, and it was the player or players who have the fewest shrines built on their houses must lose all of their villages in the largest block. Now, I like that because all the other catastrophes in the game depend upon the most or the fewest in a particular area, and he went for the whole board. If you're not being religious enough, you haven't got enough shrines, you're in trouble. It's Interesting. A harsh, though, right? They're all a bit harsh, Sean. They're all <laughs> catastrophes. Okay, so moving on to Paul Owen or Ogwain. His catastrophe would be gamer entitlement. Ooh, controversial. controversial. <laughs> <laughs> Your civilization has advanced to a point where vast swathes of the population live comfortably and have nothing to become genuinely worried about. All actions now require three times more action points because you now not only have to perform the action, but also devote time to dealing with the myriad complaints from people who have contributed nothing, yet expect everything is organised, with them specifically in mind. Hmm, Paul. <laughs> I'm not sure I can comment on that. <laughs> sure he had no one particular in no, mind there. No, none. Okay. Our competition's getting used to air grievances. Okay, this one's from Lizzie Hutchison, and Lizzie really took it and ran with this one. Dimensional holes open, and we are surreptitiously invaded by animals that appear to be domestic pets, dogs and cats and hamsters, etc. But really, they are aliens that start infiltrating our world to the highest levels. They will start by locating and killing key support systems and people before unveiling themselves for mass human extermination from hamsters. Cuckoo! (laughs) Now... Lizzie is a lovely person, and I think we should show her some respect for her mental idea. It's a fantastically creative idea. <laughs> Moving on Moving to, on to Tom Lyles. Tom has decided that the gods cease to find our squabbles and squatting on their planet amusing, and they start to play nasty games with us that will eventually lead to the end of the human race. Nice happy theme there. During their nasty games, they find it amusing to play with conventional religion rules such as the deadly sins, taking on a whole new meaning. The horsemen of the apocalypse and the return of the messiah. Very scary. I think Tom's been eating too much cheese before bedtime. (laughs) He's been eating something. (laughs) 
<laughs> Again, Tom's a lovely man, but wow. You're really going to people's psyche when you start doing these things. Right, this one we need to be a bit more respectful. This is from the big man. The big man. Jimmy Coppage. The big man. Crom. So Jimmy's clearly a Conan fan. Decides that not enough has been done to show respect and roars his discontent. Only buildings with shrines remain in the largest settlement and two-story buildings with shrines are granted a bonus. The owning player may place an oven on the same tile. So that can be interesting thing it will do to the board in Hoyuk. It will split things up. I mean, you have to work together to build up your villages. I like it. And it's all about shrines. There's a lot of shrines and religion in our entry, Sean. Yeah, I like that one too. Well done, Big Jimmy. Now, moving on to Mama Youngworth. Now, Mama has decided that if she were designing a civilization game, she would have the catastrophe of Epic Blizzard, where no one can obtain any resource during their next turn as they would be snowed in. Again, it's a very harsh one, but as Ronan said, they are catastrophes. Epic blizzard. Epic blizzard. Fantastic. Gnarly. Well done, Mama. Okay, so those were all cool, and thank you for those entries and everyone else who entered. But our winner this time round is from Scott Bickley. Uh, And this one amused us. Sean. Yes, so Scott, you'll be hopefully receiving, well, you will be receiving an email from us, and also if you could get in contact with us, so we could get your address and we'll send out your winning game for this entry. Scott's idea for the catastrophe was Alien Invaders. The person with the most farms stroke pens loses half their cattle. It's a simple idea, but I like it, Ronan. I like it. It goes in with the advanced rules where you start getting cattle meeples onto the board and it's kind of funny that the alien invaders coming over. I don't know. It, I had the picture of the Stone Age people and the UFO and the cattle disappearing and the real... What? What What was that? <laughs> Where me cow? <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, you made us laugh. That might say more about us than you. Thank you very much, everyone who entered. Well done, Scott. Thank you, the major company, for providing the prize. Hoyuk has been successfully kickstarted again with the Obstacles expansion, and I believe 12 rounds. The last expansion for that gaming system is coming to Kickstarter soon from Mage Company. Keep an eye open for that. Okay, moving on from the competition to our next game, which is El Gaucho. A 2014 release came out in Essen of last year. It comes from Argentum Verleg and designed by Arve du Furla. And he designed a game that we reviewed in a previous Picking Over the Bones, one that Ronan liked and I didn't, and that's Pagoda. It plays two to four players in a playtime of about 60 minutes. What is it? It's a dice rolling, worker placement and set collection game where players assume the roles of cattle barons in South America. The gauchos, which are used as your workers in the games, are the cowboys of South America. And this game is set in the Pampas areas, which are the fertile lowlands of Argentina, Uruguay and Brazil. There you go. So, in the game, players will have a number of workers or gauchos and they will use their gauchos to try and collect herds of cattle in matching colours. First up, the board will be set up with a fenced-off area in which a number of dice will be rolled. Cattle tiles will then be placed and are available to be claimed. 
The last area of the board are action spaces and that will allow players to gain bonuses. The start player will roll the dice and each player will choose two dice and use the results of the dice to place gauchos either on the cattle or on the action spaces. To place on the cattle, you have two options as there are two numbers on each cow. The larger number is the cost to own the cow outright and the smaller number is to basically stake a claim and place the gaucho lying down. At a later time, players can pay the smaller amount again and the gaucho will stand up. So you could say that you are buying the cattle in installments. However, not owning the cow outright is dangerous and you can be removed from it. At the end of the round, if a row of the cattle have a gaucho on every tile, whether they are upright or not, then the ones that are upright are claimed by the person whose gaucho is on it. And they will add it to their herd, which is their basically their collection that sits in front of them of cattle. So why do you want these cattle? Well, you're trying to collect them in sets of the same colour, but they must be ordered numerically in ascending or descending order, depending on what way you decide to go initially. If you have a cow of the same colour that does not follow the order, you must sell the herd and start a new one with the cow you couldn't add. The herd price is the highest numbered cow and they range from 1 to 12 multiplied by the amount of cattle tiles in the herd. As I said, you can also place on the action spaces. You need to use dice matching the requirement number for the space and then place your gaucho in the area for use on a subsequent turn. The action spaces quite simply are wish. This will allow players to have an imaginary third dice showing any result for one turn only. An immediate sale, selling herds this way rather than waiting to get that number that doesn't fit in will give you an extra five money. Sort, you can slot in a cow that is out of order. So this is a way of just avoiding selling that herd and you can slot in yet another cow to make it a more lucrative herd of cattle. Steal, you take a cattle tile from another player, raise and replace the gauchos. You have the choice of either standing up two of your lying down gauchos or replacing an opponent's lying down gaucho with a standing up one of your own. As I said before, that's when it becomes quite important to get your gauchos standing up because they can be removed. And you have the secret cattle. These are four tiles placed face down in, on this area called the step and the players will choose one or two tiles from this to keep. The game ends when the cattle tiles run out and then all owned cattle are sold with the winner being the one with the most money. So that's El Gaucho Ronan, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all it makes a great impression Sean. It is really nicely produced, everything is cool and bright and vibrant, it's got a different theme, a good theme that makes sense, it basically comes down to, you know, some basic mechanisms of set collection and worker placement and dice rolling. But it pulls them all together and nothing really feels superfluous. Nothing feels tacked on. All the components work with what they're supposed to do. Everything makes sense in the presentation. It just has that solid, we've tried and tested this game. It works. Feel to it that makes you feel safe as soon as you start playing. Okay, and that was El Gaucho. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> So, it's not all positive. <laughs> no, no. Um, it's a really pleasant looking game. And I have to say that that fenced off area on the board, Ronan, where you roll the dice into this little paddock or whatever you want to call it, it really appealed to the child in me. 
I saw that at Essen and it almost made me want to buy the game there and then because I am that easy. But yeah, I like the design of the game. It does look great. And we'll be talking about dice rolling game in Magikoro. And we talk about lots of dice rolling games, especially when you're just rolling a, a D6 or whatever it may be with numbers on. A lot of the time with the games. Firstly, I love the fact that you roll the pool. We talked about the castle dice quite a while ago. I think that's a good idea. But generally, it's best to choose the highest numbers, right? And then when you're third or fourth player, you're picking up the scraps. In this game, it's not always best to just choose the highest numbers. I think they could have done it slightly more that way. I'll talk about that in a second. But that they've got right. In each bit, the set collection goes up or down. The work placement, each of the spaces is valuable in its own way. And you need to time when to use it correctly. And even with rolling the dice, you don't just choose sixes all the time. They've got every single thing has got a little twist on it to make it a little bit more interesting and less obvious than any other games which may have come from Japan and be about dice rolling and city building, which one more anything is. Yes. It's very jovial looking. It's very bright and colourful and cartoony but it's got a nasty little underbelly, Ronan. It's a lot of screwage possible in this, whether it's just taking a die that you know somebody else needs that number or taking the last one of that number or using that steel action to take a cow off somebody. If you time it right, as somebody in this podcast might have done to uh, to their beloved. <laughs> and won with that. And move. won and stole the game from me. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that might be why I'm so happy and also about the game, take, yeah, And also taking somebody else's lying down gaucho. I've done it in, in the past where I've just taken someone's gaucho off and replaced it with standing one of mine because it's just worth too much money to them. So it does have a nasty little streak to it, Ronan. But mostly it's indirect conflict, which is why I think it fits in nicely. It's not multiplayer solitaire. You're not just collecting your own little thing. You are combating other people for the cows, but also using, as you said, special powers. When two people start going after the same type of cow, and you're building two different herds, that's when it gets interesting, and you think, oh, they're not going to go for the nine, because they're going down, and they've already got to four, and then they do a quick swapsy roundsies, take the nine, use the power to fill it in the middle, because you can use certain work placement areas to, to put cattle in where they couldn't usually go, and suddenly, oh... And certain moves can cost people lots. You know, if I'm going to get a 12 in a 6 herd, it goes from a 5 times 10 to a 6 times 12. It's over 20 points, it costs. But indirect and not right in your face and not mean, mean stuff. And usually quite later on in the game as well, once the pattern's been established. I think it does indirect conflict really, really well. Yeah, it does. And it's it's a little bit more thinky than I thought it would be. And there's timing issues in this, Ronan. There's various rows of cattle. And as I said, that if we fill up the row of cattle, then you get to take the ones where you have standing up gauchos. Now, you might not necessarily want one cattle piece in a, in a certain area, and you want to get another one before it. So it's, tight, it's getting the timing right and making sure that you get them in the sequence that you need. There's also the, the timing of when to sell your herd. Would you hold on for that big score? Or do you keep it rotating? As well as all the action spaces and choosing your dice. So there's actually quite a lot to think about when it, when it boils down to it. It's not a massively thinky game, but way more than it appears on the surface. It's not mindless. It's definitely your thinking and your planning and your adapting. I'll say a couple of things that possibly slight criticism on it, because... Everyone's going to get through. This is genuinely going to be a positive review. I like El Gaucho. Spoiler. Okay. One thing I'd do. 
the six is generally powerful. Although I've contradicted myself there. I said you don't always choose a six. I really wish the most powerful worker placement areas were on the lower rolls to make that choice even more difficult. And the less powerful ones were for the sixes and fives. So that I genuinely might not have wanted to let a one go around to other players because that's the one they might use to take a tile out of that little private draw pile you can take them out using the six. Just that that little thing to, to mix up the dice selection a little bit, sure. I'm not really sure where you're going with this, Ryan, because I actually felt, and maybe that's another boon to this game, that the six wasn't the most powerful. Yeah, you got an extra cattle tile, but I felt that maybe the extra dice or the ability to steal somebody else's cattle, which weren't weren't sixes, the, the extra dice was a one, two, or three, and I think the steal action was number four, so I felt that they used at the right time were more powerful. Nice. Cool. Okay. Well, how about the downtime? And it's not generally in the game, but from rolling the dice and you're first to choose, and then everyone else has a go, then everyone else has a go again, and then you're last to choose. There's that little thing of sometimes, you, once you've had your go and rolled and chosen your dice... I know I'm not going to play again for five minutes. Not that there's a lot of downtime in the game, it's a slow game, but have start playing move anti-clockwise so that you're not left with that big, huge downtime. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah I see where you're going, Ronnie. You go first, and you get first choice of everything, and then, as you said, you're last, and you've got that big t- wait. And I felt that the frustration for me was waiting and watching people taking their dice out. And, I, yeah, I never like stuff like that when I'm having to wait and I've got my plan and I have to wait for it. It was a little bit, I'd say probably a minute or two more than there. It was comfortable, but I didn't think it was a massive problem. No, I don't think any of these are massive problems. These are just little things where I, I was, because it all works so well, it's such a good game, it's, I was trying to find slight little maybe this, maybe that, and my last maybe will be, is it always going to be quite close? Uh, <laughs> you've called me there. Um, I think so, because there's a lot of to and fro, and there's a lot of, not catch-up mechanisms in the game, but things that you can do to slow the other people down or to to steal things off them and to take their cow, their gauchos off cows. There's lots of things you can do and interact with the other people. So I think this very nature, if somebody is running away with it, in a, in a three- or four-player game, somebody is inevitably going to do something nasty to the leader. So, yeah, I think it There's is... There's no stampede to victory? Have you heard yourself? Sorry. Come on, heard. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> God. There's no comedians left in this world. Well, you're full of bull. Anyway, move on. <laughs> I'll aim one, one at you, Ronan. One of the things I felt about this game, I think you disagree with me because I think we talked about it, was that it didn't sit in a nice little compartment for me in terms of I didn't feel it was quite easy and happy-go-lucky enough to be a gateway game. And I didn't feel it was deep enough to be a sort of mid-level range. I felt I sat in the middle. I was not sure that a new player or a, a very casual player would get the little subtle subtle bits of the game. But I thought a seasoned gamer might find it a little bit. I think we've seen that done better sort of thing. I think it's the perfect type of gateway. I think it's the sort of gateway in which you can play it at a certain level and you will score some points and you will do things, but other people will beat you. And as you play the game, because it's got that nice sort of entry, collecting cows, it's not intimidating in any way, there's not too many moving parts, but 
if you are the kind of person in which deeper games will click, you will see the patterns. You will see what else you can do. You will watch the good play and you'll think, even if you haven't seen someone else do it, oh, do you know what? I could do this and do that. And suddenly, and it's that sort of game which you can discover, but it's not massive. It's not overwhelming. I think sometimes we pitch gateway games too low to people. When they come along and you're, I've never played games before. Oh, great. Let's just play these kind of childy games. And sometimes we put people off the hobby because they go, they're just playing child games. They're just playing real simple games. I got taken into the hobby by playing proper games and I loved the challenge and I was rubbish at them. And I still am rubbish at lots of games. But that's what intrigued me, the ability to explore. And I think El Gaucho very gently and well introduces that ability of, here's a very simple way of playing it. Do you know what? There's more to this game and you will see as you play that there is more to it. And that's the right way to introduce people to the hobby. Although, obviously, there's no one-size-fits-all. Yeah, I'm not convinced. I think the nastiness in the game would put a lot of people off if the seasoned player or the... Swim or die, man. Swim or die. Come on. (laughs) The fresh meat is there for a reason. (laughs) So you're basically saying you're going back to your XCOM argument. You're going to swim or die. XCOM's different. <laughs> anyway, we, I, it's not like we haven't dedicated enough time to XCOM. So, <laughs> do you want to give us your final thoughts on El Gaucho, Rona? If anyone's still listening after our week-long XCOM review, exactly what I just said. Good gateway game. Light, but fun. There's genuine decisions in it. This is light gaming done correctly. It's good to have a slightly different theme. It's not the same old, same old. That always helps. Like you say, just having that sort of pen to roll in the dice into helps. Most people are shallow like that. They like the aesthetic experience. If you like a 60-minute Euro with some player interaction, a tiny bit of screwage, this is the perfect game for you. It's competent. It's solid. It's fun. It's exactly what I want in a 60-minute game. El Gaucho, thumbs up. Yeah, again, I've left it all out there. There's nothing really more to say. I like the design of the game. I think it's a beautiful-looking game. Appeals to the child in me with that pen. It's got a lovely bit of screwage in it that I think really works at the higher player numbers, the four players. I'm not sure about it as a two-player game. I still have my slight reservations. Where Does it sit as a gateway or a sort of middle-range game? But... Overall, thoroughly enjoyable game, and that is El Gaucho. So the last game in this episode we're going to review is Legendary Encounters, an alien deck-building game. It's a 2014 release for one to five players with an advertised 45-minute playing time. It's all lies! Lies, Sean, lies! Ben Kichowski and Danny Mandel are designers. They've mostly been part of collectible card games, living card games, including the WoW collectible card game. They hold the sign there. It's published by Upper Deck. Again, they are publishers of the Legendary Game System, which has only used Marvel as an IP before this alien system, and also collectible card games. 
So I just mentioned the Marvel Legendary games. This is very much an adaptation of the Legendary system which is debuted in that system, which means it is a cooperative deck builder. Difference in this one is, obviously, firstly, the theme is based on the Alien film franchise, the H.R. Geiger, Aliens, and comics, and all the other things that come out from there. In this, as opposed to how the Marvel system works, this is very much more scripted. And the players will play through a three-act scenario with set goals to achieve throughout those three acts, and they're attempting to achieve those three acts before all the players have died. There are different win conditions, depending upon what what scenario you have done. Now, they're set up to play through the movies or to mix and match different parts of the movies. What you also do is, though, you set up teams of four characters in exactly the same way. This might be four characters, all from Alien, or from Aliens, or from Alien Resurrection. Or you can mix and match different characters, depending upon how you want to do with all the cards which are in the box. The team of four characters are going to get shuffled up and they're going to create a barracks deck for you and those cards are the cards you're going to be buying from. Depending on the scenario you're going to set up a separate alien deck and those are the cards that are going to come into play that are going to set your challenges. There's going to be enemies you're going to have to fight and there's going to have to be goals you're going to have to achieve. Again in a difference to the Marvel system you start as an actual character in this game. It is one of several different roles. You might be a medic, you might be a mercenary, you might be a priest or an executive. Now the difference there is everyone starts with 11 cards in their hand. 10 of them are the same as each other. They are either going to be specialists, which will give you stars to spend to recruit more cards from that barracks deck. Or they will be grunts, which will give you slashes, as we call them, fighting ability to defeat enemies which will come out of the alien deck. The 11th card is going to be unique to the character you begin with. And it's going to give you the ability to draw another card, so it doesn't clog up your hand. But it's also going to give you something else. It might be extra fights, or extra currency to purchase cards. Or it might give you the ability to heal, or it might give you the ability to recruit a card from the barracks directly into your deck, rather than into your discard pile. And some way it's going to make you slightly unique to the other players around you. So, on your turn, what are you going to do? You're going to... Enter a card from the alien deck. There is a row, which is going to be similar to the Marvel game, of five locations. And the cards from the alien deck are going to enter these, and they're going to get pushed along. So as one enters on the right-hand side, if there is a card in that space, that card is going to push left. And if there is a card in the next space, they're all going to push left and create a conveyor belt effect. So that if all five spaces are filled, cards will drop down. Now the difference here is, these cards as they enter, enter face down. You don't know what they are, and that's part of the theming of the game. There is a threat within the complex. There are aliens in the walls. You don't know where they are. Once a card drops down, it drops into an area called the combat zone. And it flips. If it's an alien, enemy, it's going to stick around there. And if you haven't dealt with that by the end of your turn, it's going to attack you and cause you damage. Because everyone has hit points. If you do deal with it, it's not going to attack. And if it stays in there, for every round, each player's go, that those cards remain in the combat area, they will hit each player on their turn. The end of their turn. So I mentioned hit points. Each character has got hit points. If you have damage equal to or more than your hit points, you are dead and you are out of the game. And the idea is to achieve these three objectives before that happens to everyone else. So once that card enters play face down, what are you going to do on your turn? There will be a row of five cards available to you in the barracks. As discussed, these will be from four different characters from the Aliens franchise. And they will have various different effects and various costs. And generally, they're going to help you generate either stars to buy more cards to improve your deck or slashes to help you fight. 
There's a second thing you can do with slashes in this game. Those cards I mentioned face down in the complex, you can scan the rooms they're in by spending slashes and turn them over and you get to see what type of cards there are. You already know what happens with the aliens. The aliens have got a fight value and they've got hit point value and if you are able to generate as many slashes as is their hit point value, you will defeat them and they will go out of the game. They won't drop to combat area and they won't therefore attack you at the end of the turn. Any in the combat area can do that as well. There are various other cards that can be there though. There can be eggs that might spawn aliens in the future. There might be special aliens that are part of the scenario. There might be equipment you can actually set up in rooms to help you. There might be all manner of different things. There are events which occur which are scenario dependent. There are hazards which occur which again are location dependent. Many different things and also quite horrifically face huggers. Now you couldn't have an alien game without face huggers and chest bursters could you? Face huggers will go in front of you and you have got your turn and the next player has got a turn to defeat the face huggers which usually takes three slashes. If they are not defeated you will then have a chest burster appear in your discard pile. As per normal deck building, you're gonna shuffle your discard pile to make your deck and you can draw your hand from there. If you ever draw a chest chest burster, it is instant death. You can play with advanced rules, which means you then become an alien player and you're working against the other players, or in the basic game where you're gonna start playing that just means you've gone and you're out of the game. So be aware of that. You just need one player to survive to complete the mission to be successful. You may well go through that alien deck. You can go through that alien deck twice. If you go through twice and you still haven't completed the mission, then the it's a failure. The aliens have overrun the complex. And like I say, you can mix and match the scenarios which you are playing. Sean, it is an adaptation of that legendary system, which we've talked about before and we've both played and owned. Initial thoughts on legendary encounters and alien deck building games. Initially, let's just talk about how it comes out of the box. Well, it's one of the big selling points <laughs> yeah. to me, just how easy it is to, to pull that out of the box and just get playing straight, straight in away. There, yeah. Yeah. Straight away. Yeah, straight in, no easy setup. Just, yeah, yeah, we haven't even gonna get, yeah, we're not even getting to set up yet. The game comes <laughs> as several bundles of cards, all, no rhyme or reason to them, all mixed together, higgledy-piggledy. Okay, that doesn't sound so bad. You need to see these cards. Okay, you need to realise how similar dozens and dozens of these cards are to each other. Very little will tell you where they need to go. The game comes with dividers. They are not labelled dividers. It doesn't tell you the different decks in the game. There is no card list in the game. There is nothing to tell you where everything goes. It is just a wodge of hundreds and hundreds of similar cards with no way of knowing how to work it out. It took me Google searches two and a half hours to sort out my decks of cards. Not a good first impression. <laughs> Shall we move on to the setup, Roland? It's a pain. It was always an issue with Legendary that the setup is it takes a while because there's so many decks to get together and shuffle and put together and create and then the breakdown you've got to separate all the decks out again. It's just part of this system you have to accept. Setting up a game is a pain. It's actually slightly more of a pain than this one. There's a bit more sorting out to do when the aliens attack you, they don't just take a certain amount of health from you. There's a strike deck. Then there's hatchery decks. And then there's drone decks. And certain cards from the drone decks go into each of the scenario-specific decks. And uh, it, there's just an awful lot going in to sort out and shuffle and get ready and create. And 
how the alien deck is formulated depends upon player count and it takes a while to get going. Oh yes, it does. It does. But then, as you said, we knew Legendary. We had played Marvel Legendary, so we were kind of going in with our eyes open to that one. Now, there are things that I do enjoy about this game, but I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit, Ronan. The fact that you can insta-death... Oh, we're going straight in hard, are we? Technically. We are going straight there. The fact that you can practically insta-death. Now, I know you said that there is the advanced version where you become the alien player, which incidentally feels clunky and very unsubtle to me. But let's think of the base game. Any game where if you can just die through no fault of your own and not be able to help that and do it early in a game, especially a a co-op game, well, any game, any game at all, as a maker of a game, you are failing to do the basic principle of what you're setting out to do, is allowing everybody to enjoy the game. You're not. You're effectively ruling somebody out of the game because they picked up the wrong card at the wrong time completely randomly. You've, ju- you've failed your customers. That I, I hate that in any game. But if you're playing a game and getting in the first round, you could be out by the second round. I sat there and watched one of Ronan's daughters playing this game, and with tears in her eyes when we told her that actually, no, you can't play anymore. Sorry. Bye. That's bad parenting. (laughs) That's all that was. (laughs) (laughs) You set that up that way, didn't you? No, I don't want to play with you. You're not my (laughs) favourite. Wow, the player elimination. I guess it's thematic. For an alien thematic game to work, you have to feel under threat. You have to feel like the aliens can get you at any time, okay? So, they've brought the player elimination in requirements. The problem, initially, just on that thematic sense, is it's only a threat to them. You have to do three damage to avoid getting face hunted. Later on, every player can't do at least three damage on their turn. You're in huge, huge trouble. Okay? You're going to lose anyway. Early on, it's very hard to do three damage. So, this all comes down to, if you get a face hugger early, you're dead. So player elimination, like that, instant player elimination, only happens early in the game. At the very worst time, when everyone else has got an hour and a half left to go, 45 minutes playtime, you know, an hour and a half left to go, and then you're left doing nothing. Um, it doesn't work. Not good. Not good It doesn't good at scale all. It really to the isn't. game. It, it shouldn't be available right at the beginning. Because it's too harsh, and then it becomes pointless later on. Because it's just three, yeah, three, whatever, one, two, three, yeah, one, two, three. Yeah, we, we've got. Ugh. So, I see why they tried to do it. I see the, the thing. Okay. So, there's two ways of mitigating it one official and one unofficial. The official one is exactly as Sean said you become an alien player. Who thought this game needed to get harder by it putting an alien player in? Anyone? Sean? Anyone? <laughs> no, no. As I said, it's just, it's just so unsubtle. Well, who played it when yeah, I was too easy? So, Moving yeah. On. <laughs> and the alien player, I, I like that they put stuff in the box. I like that you've got alternatives. Maybe when you get fantastic at the game, you will need that challenge of having the ability of an alien player. As Ronald said, there is, of course, that unofficial variant. And that allows players to have a pool of extra lives so that should somebody be unlucky enough to get that chest burster early in the game you have an extra life and or a couple of extra lives 
to work with. So everybody is involved for most, if not all, of the game. And it makes a huge, huge difference. As you haven't got that fear that you're just going to die and be out of the game. We had one game where somebody was playing on their own for 40 minutes and that's just not acceptable but the variant does make it much much better and I think we would both definitely advise anybody who plays this game especially from the start just to play with that variant with the extra pool of lives. So Ronan you mentioned the jokingly short time frame that they suggest that this plays in. Do you feel like the time frame that it does play in? Let's go to a game playing with the variant where everybody's involved. Do you do you feel that it plays out at the right time frame? Or is it a little bit too long, a little bit too short? What do you think? So in terms of how you fill those 90 minutes, I think it's because it works more as a team game. Because you're doing stuff on each other's turns. With Marvel Legendary, you weren't doing much. You were just watching what other people were doing and what they were doing with their cards. This time, they've really addressed that. One of the key things is there's a cooperate keyword on the cards. And if you've got a card in your hand that says cooperate on it, it means you can play it on another player's turn to assist them, give them the power of the card. There might be more stars to spend, more slashes to fight with. Also, the system for Legendary with the five categories of cards, where they were instincts and ranged and technology before, have been taken across with the same symbols. So cards can chain and can almost kick in extra abilities on other cards. You can do that with each other and say, well, I have one with a tech symbol here, and that will work off mine and you can discuss with each other and if you do use a card for cooperate you get to draw another card so it costs you nothing it's a fantastic system they've brought in to address the fact that with marvel legendary it was this semi-co-op you're actually trying to score more points than each other and on other players turns you didn't have that much to do this game is hard even without an alien player it's hard you need to work together and sean what's my favorite saying when we play alien you must use cooperate Yes, but I think cooperate is both a blessing and a curse. Oh. Um, oh, controversial, I know. So, yes, I think it does everything that you just said. I think it does promote cooperation. It does exactly what it says on the tin. You have to cooperate. But I think it's so important that if one of those cards comes up or is available, you almost have to go for it. And it takes a little bit of the choice away in the game. All of a sudden, you've got everyone saying, well, there's cooperate available. Why aren't you taking that? Hey, hey, numpty boy, cooperate. Come on, come on. I think that was an impression of me. (laughs) (laughs) And I think sometimes I push cooperate too hard because it's such a change from Marvel Legendary. And a lot of the guys that I've played with and girls I've played this with I've played the Marvel version with, and we're used to not cooperating. It's a new thing that I've been trying to get in people's heads. Don't forget to cooperate. Don't forget to cooperate. Use cooperate, because without it, you'll lose. And that might be my fault. You've learned earlier, because you play, you have played more games by the time you introduced it to me, and you realised that how important cooperate was. And I completely agree with you. It is really important. And I just felt, especially early in the game, I felt that you you almost had to take the cooperate if it was available. Even when I'm cooperating with people and it's a cooperative game, I still like to sort of deliver my part of that cooperation, but in my own way. And I felt like sometimes I couldn't do that in this. Yeah, okay. I can see what you're saying. It's it's almost like that is 50% of your strategy decided for you. Now the rest you can do is the other 50% of tweaking around. But it's quite, it is an experienced game, though, and the game does lead you by the nose. Now, 
I like that they've tried to create an atmosphere of Alien in this. I don't think that universally the game is that great or the art is that great, but I think it creates an Alien feel to it via the artwork and the look. And I love the scenario basis. I love that it structures this system more. I love that it tells the story. I think some of them are a bit harsh, but you know, I think it's just the nature of the beast. It is a hard co-op game. But in to sacrifice some freedom in terms for giving you that structure and leading you a little bit more and having it scenario based and having cooperate be important. We've made it more of a true co-op, but we've taken away a little bit of the freedom maybe. Yeah, but that is actually my favourite part, the fact that you can play like one, two, three, four and characters from them like Newt appears in the second one and the cat appears in the in the first one and does something to help you out just something small but the aliens change and the different types of aliens that you get in the different films all come out and the characters play thematically as they did in those films i like that i I, that's my favorite part of this game i'm not a massive alien fan but it almost made me and probably does make me want to re-watch the films yeah i tried to talk my oldest daughter into watching the films with me and she said no after you ruled her out of the game, now you're trying to give her nightmares for a month. That's right. I'm not a good parent. You're on I never course, to parent of the year, I'll be. <laughs> I'm a bad person. <laughs> okay. One thing I will say that I think one of the characters is not particularly well balanced. The mercenary. The mercenary can spend stars as slashes. Now, having fighting ability, it's hard to get in this game. It's definitely that particular resource or currency is at a premium, and the mercenary can turn stars into slashes. The basic card in the game, same as the Maria Hill in the Marvel Legendary, was it's worth two stars to help you play as the sergeant, but that has cooperate on it. We have the mercenary in play. If everyone else has a sergeant, they had given you six stars, which you can immediately turn into slashes, makes you hugely powerful. I'm yet to see a team with the mercenary lose, and I'm yet to see a team without the mercenary win. Is the mercenary sort of almost like a beginner's character in that you kind of need the mercenary until you get a little bit better than maybe you can think about leaving the mercenary out? Yeah, but then that doesn't... That's not very satisfactory to me. Mm. It's already a point of controversy amongst gaming group of do we play with mercenary and without mercenary. You know, it's become a thing straight away of their power is so much more powerful than everyone else's power. There's the opposite is the priest can turn slashes into stars, which is Oh, great. You are worse than useless. <laughs> that's, that's a bit harsh. You can buy some cards. Great. Yeah, when, when there's aliens in the combat zone and you can't kill them and they're building up, there's two, there's three, there's four, and you've got the mercenary can go bang, 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 clear it out. The amount of strikes they can save for the whole team is huge. Well, I talked about the thematic side with the, the, the different scenarios. Do you feel that the familiarity with the film and an affinity with the film helps in this? Because I'm more inclined to like the Marvel version because I'm more inclined to like the Marvel comics. And I bought the comics, collected the comics as a kid, still watch all the Marvel films when they come out. And as I said, not the biggest Alien fan. I'm not the biggest Alien fan either, in all fairness to you. So... I think affinity with the subject is only going to help. I think they put lots of touches in there for the fans but it's almost one of those IPs which is it's obviously a tighter IP than Marvel Marvel is massive and there's so many different characters in that now and my box is full of different cards that you put out certain characters and yeah people who aren't Marvel fans are looking at them going I have no idea what that is I have no idea but Alien 
not only if you've seen the films do you know the property, but if you haven't seen the films you know the intellectual property. You know about Scorny Weaver, you know about Ripley, you know about the alien, no one hears you scream in space, you know about chestbursters, you don't have to have seen the films to do that. But So from having the tighter focused IP, I think it's a more familiar IP, and even if you're not a big fan of the films, certain things within there is going to ring true with you. Do you think that there's enough variety in the actual alien creatures that come out in each scenario? I think there's kind of subtle differences between them. I like that in, you're going to get the eggs in certain scenarios that they're going to pop out if you don't deal with them. Well, aliens themselves come from that drone deck, which is used for every different scenario. So you're going to see the same ones again and again eventually. But I think the variety doesn't just come from the aliens and the way that they attack. Because you have some do double strikes and some will it will hit you when you kill them and some you can't attack unless you know they've been uncovered or the card next to them's uncovered. There's different things which are nice that they do. But I think the variety really comes from those things which aren't aliens and they're the hazards and the events and the objectives. And that's what really gives you a feeling of playing a different story each time, as opposed to the different aliens themselves. Okay, so I'm gonna sum up Ronan. I really, really wanted to like this game. And I've gone on about the Insta Death, so I won't I won't drone on about that one. For me, I think the time frame is a little too long. Even when playing with the variant, it was just a little bit too long. And I didn't feel like the variety in the aliens was great. So it felt like the same aliens just kept coming out in wave and wave after wave. And we were just repeating the same thing. I did feel a bit limited in my choice in terms of you had to get those cooperate cards in early doors. I loved the thematic elements of it. I really did think it was thematic. I loved the way the different scenarios represent the different films and you can intermingle them. And yeah, I loved that. And I thought, I think there's a lot of longevity in terms of the game for that. I just have to say, for my tastes, I'm more inclined to play the Marvel game. I'm glad I've played this one. I would not turn down a game of it. I wouldn't buy it. And I think if I did own it, I don't have the patience that Ronan had in sorting out those cards. And I think it would be sitting down in the bedroom, probably with a bootmark attached to it. It's a very good attempt at addressing the system. But I think where they've addressed certain things, they failed in other things. And it's not quite the complete legendary system game yet but a good attempt. So, this is a game I like despite the flaws. The player count issues with the whole legendary system are still there, and I think it's ridiculous it hasn't been addressed properly. The player elimination is awful, and I won't play it without the variant at all. You must have lives, and then if you lose that number of lives, you all lose together. Just having one carried on playing forever is just an awful gaming experience. It does develop on... The system, though, it does pull it in and make it a bit tighter, and it does try and do interesting things with a legendary system. I think thematically they've made some great steps to turn this into an alien game. It doesn't just feel like a skin. It feels like mechanically they've changed certain things to make you feel like you're playing alien. I keep wanting to play the game, and I keep enjoying the game, and yet feeling certain players' frustrations with the game, and then thinking, oh, this is so close to being great. And what I keep coming back to is, I'm happy I have it. I'm happy I have it to play. I've enjoyed games of it. It's got a different feel to other co-ops. I love the actual team aspect to it. But what I really, really would love to have seen is the alien game these guys would have designed if they weren't constricted to doing it within the legendary system 
because I think that underlying system doesn't necessarily suit this game and they've done pretty much as well as they could have done with the remit they were given I wish I could see them with a more wide open design space to give me the ultimate alien card game this is really good, I enjoy it but held back by the flaws of the legendary system so this is Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game. And there we have it. That's 43, a mammoth episode 43 in the bag. And we hope you enjoyed it. We're going to introduce a slightly new part to the, our outro now, in which we both designate a game of the episode. So Ronan, would you like to lead us in with your game of this episode? This, actually, looking back at the other picking over the bones we've done, there were some clear Game of the Weeks for me. This one was difficult. It was never Machi Koro. El Gaucho is solid, and both XCOM and Legendary I really enjoy, despite flaws. In the end, the game that I most want to play, and I'm most likely to get out, and it's the only game I'm going to keep from all four of them, is Legendary Encounters, an alien deck-building game. I think the highlights just about overcome the lowlights. Sean, what's your game of the week from the four we've played? Well, as, as yourself, Machikora was straight out the door. Uh, Legendary, I'm not really a big fan of it at Alien Encounters, so that was ruled out pretty quickly. So it was between El Gaucho and XCOM, and I really enjoy XCOM, and I've had some wonderful games of it. I can't say the same for El Gaucho. I've had some good games of El Gaucho, so my choice is XCOM. Very nice. If you join us next time, we are going to do a special from LobsterCon 9. Now, LobsterCon is the London on board twice yearly excursion down to the south coast of England, where we hole up in a hotel and play lots and lots of games. Sean and I are going to be there. Some of our contributors are going to be there. We're just going to be having a quick run over the games we've played, what we've enjoyed, what we didn't enjoy, any nice surprises... And an overview of what will be, I'm sure, a fantastic weekend of gaming. It surely will, we hope. And, as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, where you can find the finest gaming podcasts. We're also proud members of 2d6.org. Go there for a whole heap of gaming goodness. You can find us on Twitter, at GamePitPodcast. We're also on Facebook. You can email us at thegamepit.org podcast at gmail.com if you've got any questions ideas for shows or just want to chew the fat we have also as Ronan mentioned at the top of the show got a board game geek guild and there's some interesting conversations being had in there so feel free to pop along and tell us your views 